Well, good morning. My name is Pastor Matt, though not your pastor, a, a pastor nevertheless, a child of this church from a long time ago. I was, as I was watching the worship band up here, I was remembering when uh, a dear saint of ours who has passed away put me behind the upright piano that used to be over here with my guitar unplugged as an eighth grader. And uh, that brought back some, some memories. Anyways, if you don't know, I'm uh, Pastor Rick, uh, your former pastor's son, his firstborn son, and uh, I'm one of those, I think, pastor's kids, maybe a rare pastor's kid that had a good pastor's kid experience growing up. So thank you to those of you who contributed uh, to that experience. Well, it is a delight to preach God's Word to you to wrap up our series in Galatians. Uh, welcome to those of you who are here, those of you who are listening online. Uh, we're in for a treat, not because I have great things to say, but because God's word is great. And Paul very wisely wraps up a difficult letter to a difficult problem in Galatians. The issue is, what is true spirituality? What does it really look like to be spiritual and there is, there is just untold amounts of boasting and pride and conceit. Paul even uses language like devouring, biting, going on in the church. What does it really mean to be spiritual? So Pastor Jason, a few weeks ago, sent me an email asking me to preach this sermon. He said, Matt, you are the closer, so bring the heat. <laughs> but he also gave me a whole chapter so I'll have to bring the heat briefly on each point. Actually, uh, each of these points could be a sermon in and of themselves. I don't like list-like sermons. This, I, I'll try to keep it from feeling too listy, but uh, we will be kind of moving uh, somewhat briefly through the text. But what does it mean to be a spiritual person? What does spirituality look like? Uh, is it, uh, does spirituality mean you wear a suit to church on Sunday and, and you like traditional music and you're a little bit more uh, somber and reserved? Does it mean wearing skinny jeans and being trendy and hip and fresh and up to date on whatever's going on in the world? Does it mean listening to your heart? Does it mean uh, doing meditation to Seek for the inner voice inside of you and, and listen and see visions when you pray. Is it speaking in tongues? Is it participating in certain church programs? Is it participating in at least eight church programs? Is it abstaining from alcohol or not abstaining from alcohol? Is it to not drink, smoke, or chew or go with girls that do? <laughs> you know, what is it? Is it a preference for certain styles of music? Or is it uh, to exude passion? You know, those poor Norwegians have a tough time exuding a lot of passion. I have enough Scotch-Irish in me to, that it comes out, and a little Italian too. So. But is that what it is? Is that to be spiritual, to show it externally with how you feel and emote uh, and so forth? Verbally process and these kinds of things. Is it raising hands in worship and swaying to the music, feeling the beat? Sometimes in some churches, literally feeling the beat. Is it building up more good works than bad, kind of keeping the karma rolling? Is it paying it forward? What does true spirituality look like? And one of the, uh, I don't have in my notes, but I just, I, I just feel for you. I remember as a young teenager going into the Christian bookstore, you go to the spirituality section, and everybody and their mother has written something on spirituality. And sadly, very few of it is very solid. Most of it is man-made and based on man's cultural opinions. And that's the problem with spirituality in the church. So much of it is man-made. We create a, a, a social, the almost social badges that we wear on our chest that, and each, each church is unique, but this shows that I'm really spiritual. If I do these things, and it can be twisted biblical principles, it can be even good biblical principles heightened and, uh, and rising above the rest. 
But when we do these things, when we impose man-made forms of spirituality on the church, we enslave it. We corrupt it. We do great harm. And all it does is build up pride in the very people that shouldn't have it. And it no longer becomes a place for the, the weak and the weary and the helpless who come to Christ. It now becomes a place to show off our own merits. I pray that that would never be here at Lakes Free. The whole letter of Galatians is about the freedom that we have in Christ. And yet so many things in our world and even unfortunately in our churches fight against that just as we see in Galatia. Like I said in this last message of Galatians, we've seen how this devastating holiness code has worked its way out. It's a man-made holiness code built on a misunderstanding of the gospel, and it's creating a twisted spirituality. So what then are the marks of true spirituality. What does life in the Spirit really look like in practice? And that's what chapter 6 is all about. So please open your Bibles up to Galatians chapter 6. And if you would, would you please stand with me as we read God's Word from Galatians chapter 6. And I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, He deceives himself, but let each one test his work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire that you be circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, Let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. You may be seated. So before us, we are going to look at seven marks of true spirituality. Then we'll end with an illustration and some closing application. That's our pathway this morning. So what does it mean to be truly spiritual? To be truly spiritual is to live by the Holy Spirit. 
Life in the Spirit is part of the miracle that comes from the gospel when we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ. And this life of faith is made evident, as we saw last week, by the fruit of the Spirit. So a person that has been justified by Christ will start to bear evidence that this Holy Spirit is at work in them. And that fruit, if you recall, are things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. That was last week. And now what Paul is doing in chapter 6 is putting hands and feet to the fruit of the Spirit. He's showing us what life in the Spirit looks like in practice. And I think uh, that is one of the most confusing things for Christians, is what does life in the Spirit look like? In the Old Testament, you had laws, and you had rules, and you had laws for worship, how the sacrifices were to be done. And you had a holiness code of how you were clean or unclean. But all that stuff goes away in the New Testament, as Paul said in Galatians 3. So then what then are we left with? It feels a little bit uh, ethereal, intangible. What does life in the Spirit really look like? Well, Paul tells us exactly that in chapter 6. He's giving us seven marks of true spirituality. So we're going to move through these things. They'll be relatively brief, but I hope they'll be helpful for you as we wrap up this series in Galatians. The first mark of true spirituality is restoring a brother or sister that is caught in sin. Paul uses the word transgression here of the person that's caught in sin, which is an Old Testament word for somebody who rebels against God or his law. And now that becomes kind of an interesting word in light of the fact that Paul said that the law of Moses was for the people of God before Christ. How then can he continue to use the word transgression? Well, we're going to come back to that in a moment. We'll talk about how he's using that word. But anyways, when it comes to gently restoring a church member caught in sin, what does Paul mean by catching someone? Does he mean that you should be uh, like hiding in a closet and like hoping to catch somebody doing some secret sin of some kind or another? We should be kind of perusing social media and watch what they're, they're saying or doing. I don't know. Is it something like that? I don't think it is. The kind of sin that's being caught out in Galatians is emphatically public. We're already seeing Paul restating the gospel and what life in the Spirit looks like. These false teachers and those that have followed after them are very publicly being caught out as we see this biting and devouring and deceit and pride and coming out. It's very public sin that Paul has in mind here. And it's a good reminder of the role of the church when somebody sins in a public way and in a defiant, transgressing way that is threatening not only the church's witness in the community, but also the health of the church as well as of the sinner who needs to be restored. And in brief, I just want to point out the vital role that pastors and elders play in this process of discipline and restoration. That's why Paul says uh, in his letter to Titus that an elder, and when he uses the word elder, elder, pastor, overseer, those are all different words talking about the same office. So he says that an elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. So that, and here's how it connects to our text, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. That's at the heart of what it means to the pastor. It's not the only thing, but it's one of the vital roles of a pastor and an elder is to know sound doctrine so that they can teach it and rebuke those who contradict it for the health of the church, 
for the health of its witness in the community and for the health of the sinner that needs to be restored. But you have a part to play in that as well. Because, as you know, this is a very antithetical kind of thing when we think about our culture, where nobody's right, nobody's wrong. We just get along. That's why so many churches sadly horribly neglect this. There's actually a church that I knew fairly intimately that led a man who was a subordinationist who believed that Jesus was less than God, kind of a Jehovah's Witness position, walk free in the church, and nobody knew. Uh, So these are vital things that we need to do, and it's no wonder that Paul makes this the first mark in light of the extreme controversy going on in Galatia and how it's just destroying the church there. So that's the first mark. The second mark of true spirituality has to do with caring for other church members. And Paul uses the phrase, the law of Christ. And now we come back to the question that we, that we scratched our head at in the first point. Do Christians who live by the Spirit still have a law to follow? Do they still have a law to follow? And the answer is, yes, they do. And it's called the law of Christ here in verse 2. But isn't that legalism? Didn't Paul say that the law was finished for Christians back in chapter 3? Well, it depends on what you mean by the law. For starters, we must define legalism. Legalism, let's talk about what it's not first. Legalism is not the enforcement of the commands of Scripture. We should expect one another to obey the commands of Scripture. That is not what legalism is. Rather, legalism is adding anything to faith, faith plus something, as a means to be justified in the sight of God. That is legalism. It's not just faith, it's also doing X, Y, or Z that will really put you in good standing with the guy upstairs. That's what it, that's what it means. But there's also a more uh, sneaky, tricky, insidious form of legalism. And I'm guessing that all of you have maybe felt it at some point in your life. And this form of legalism is the enforcement of a lifestyle code that is not commanded as necessary in Scripture. And what's sneaky about it is is it's something like, of course we're justified by faith in Christ, but then there's this implicit notion in the church that, you know, it's, it's an unspoken message, it's subliminal, but that you need to kind of behave a certain way. You know, your kids need to act this way. They, they maybe need to do this kind of schooling or that kind of schooling. Or uh, maybe, uh, you know, holy Christians, they don't go to movies, you know, or things, things like that. That have, come, you know, I'm sure some of you grew up feeling that kind of brand of Christianity. And it's really bad and really harmful. But to call the enforcement of biblical commands legalism is, is emphatically wrong. This is what the antinomians are doing who thought they could do whatever they, they wanted because of faith. Antinomian, it's the anti, and then nomos means law in Greek. You have the legalists on the one side that are adding things to works to be saved, and the antinomians are on the other side saying, hey, we're justified by grace. We can do whatever we want. It's cheap grace. But to call the enforcement of biblical commands legalism is wrong. The New Testament is filled with commands that we are to obey. And if that were not true... On what basis could the church restore or a brother or sister caught in a transgression? If it's not God's law, what law are they being caught into? I hope it's not ours. Transgression implies a breach of the law that still applies for the New Testament church. But what law? We're back to the problem. Well, we have in view here the moral law. The moral law. This aspect of God's law preceded the law of Moses and still applies today. But where do we find the moral law, you ask? Well, we see it all over the Bible. 
but very clearly in the Ten Commandments. But aren't the Ten Commandments part of the Mosaic Code? You see the wrestling here? See how difficult this is? Well, yes and no. Yes and no. The moral law, we could say, is summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments, but it doesn't originate there. In fact, in Romans 2.15, Paul says that the law is written on our hearts. The law is written on our hearts. It's part of what it means to be created in the image of God. We have God's moral duty written on our hearts. It's clarified and summarized in the Ten Commandments, but it far precedes it. It's rooted in the holiness of God. And so, for example, it's on the basis of the moral law that Paul can use the Fifth Commandment as a a valid command for New Testament children to obey their parents. It's on the basis of the moral law that Peter can quote Leviticus 11.44 as applicable to New Testament believers. You shall be holy, for I am holy. And it's on that basis that Paul calls the law good in 1 Timothy 1.8. Okay, so end of excursus on the law. Let's go back to the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? We see here that the law of Christ is to bear the burdens of our fellow brothers and sisters in the church. In many ways, it's merely a restatement of Jesus' command to love your neighbor as yourself. James likewise calls this the royal law. Paul is saying that you can fulfill the law by bearing each other's burdens. So I want you to look around and see those sitting next to you that are fellow members of this church. What burdens of theirs is God calling you to carry? How can you fulfill the law of Christ by carrying the burdens of others in this church? That's the hands and feet of life in the Spirit. That's a mark of true spirituality. Now let's go to the third one. The third mark of true spirituality is the ability to rightly judge the spiritual value of your work. Galatia, as we've said, is racked with self-deceit about the spiritual value of their works. Paul says in verse 3, if anyone thinks he is something. So there's a lot of people walking around Galatia thinking they're something. Okay? If anyone thinks he is something... When he is nothing, he deceives himself. So there's a lot of deceit, a lot of self-deceit happening in Galatia. The church is falling prey to the age-old problem of comparing themselves to others. You know, it's kind of like, well, at least I'm not as bad as so-and-so. You know, have you ever thought that? You're feeling kind of low, so you just remember, well, I'm not as bad as that guy, you know? That's what's going on. They're, they're doing this kind of edge game, party spirit, just getting themselves up a little bit higher than the person sitting next to them. And that still happens today. And at its worst, going to church can be a great act of self-justification. It's probably the reason, it's probably the cause of many fights with your spouse on the way to church or your children when you're late. And you're coming in right because you go to church to show that you can be punctual, right? And that your kids are well-behaved. No. But we go to church self-justifying. It's a deep irony. We, we're Protestant churches preaching justification by faith alone. And yet we come to church and we feel good or bad depending on how well we look in the sight of everybody else. We measure our value By things like how much we serve. How many programs are you involved in? How much Bible knowledge do you have? How well behaved are your children? You know, are you you eating like a tree hugger? My wife's kind of a tree hugger, so I had to throw that that one in. Are you eating all natural meat? You know, whatever it could be. Not that any of that's bad, but, you know, we measure ourselves by these things. And in Galatia, it was those who followed the Mosaic Code who were seen as the holiest of holy people. It's like, yeah, we believe in Jesus, but we follow Moses too. That's what's going on. 
But in our world, we don't really deal a lot with Jew-Gentile issues, but every church has a social code, and it constantly needs to be challenged by the Word of God. So cultivate some eyes to see it. But how different is Paul in his boasting? It's like night and day. Recall what he said in Philippians when he said, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Paul was a sober boaster. But what is sober boasting exactly? What, what, do we, what do I mean by this? What does Paul exemplify in his life? Well, sober boasting is the declaration of things as they really are, not as we think we are. We have a, a fairly bad problem as American evangelicals of being what one person called biblicists. Where whatever we say, or whatever, whatever our natural read of the Bible is, of course, true and right and objective. Right? And so we can really build a lot on what is actually false or sub-biblical spirituality. So how do we get to sober boasting? Again, sober boasting is the declaration of things as they really are. This is what we must realize. And this is what Paul exemplifies. For the Christian, the sum total of our existence as Christians is nothing but undeserved grace. It's nothing but undeserved grace. That's why we see Paul boast here in verse 14. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul gives more examples in other letters. Even his hardest labors were attributed to God's empowering grace. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, By the grace of God, I am what I am. Though I worked harder than any, though not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Do you know that even your energy level is a gift of God? Your very ability to praise him this morning is a gift from our God through the power of the Spirit. His strength to serve was a gift from God. Even faith, he says, is a gift. For example, he, he writes to the Romans in Romans twelve three: For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Well, if our strength to serve is a gift, and even faith itself is a gift, well, what's left for us to boast in? What's the answer? Nothing. There's nothing left to boast in. And this is the truth. What counts before God is the work that he does for us, not that we do for him. That's what counts in his side. Flesh will not stand the judgment of God. So Paul summarizes the matter in verse 15. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation, a new creation. This is the work of the Spirit. So from first to last, the Christian life is a gift. All the way from faith to the good works that flow from faith. So Paul says to the Corinthians, therefore let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's what sober assessing of our merits looks like. Let's turn to the fourth mark. The fourth mark of true spirituality is supporting those who teach you the gospel. I realize that sounds a little self-serving as a pastor, but that's what it is. That's why we preach expositionally from the text. Apparently, the problems in Galatia are causing some to stop supporting their pastors 
and teachers. I know that's never happened since Galatia, of course. But the command to share all good things means material support. And I can say from personal experience, it's easy to stop giving to the church when there's something you don't like. But nevertheless, Paul is calling them to be faithful in supporting the ministry of the word by supporting the pastors and teachers. The basic point is this, is that we should care for the earthly well-being of those who are caring for our spiritual well-being. And the eternal things will last a lot longer. So please give of your finite material things for the good of the ministry of the word in this church and around the world. And this principle is closely related to the broader consequence of sowing and reaping. There's so much sowing in the flesh going on in Galatians that he just pauses in the midst of these virtues that should mark the Christian life by reminding them of what's at stake. He says that those who by flesh, who sow by the flesh, will by the flesh reap corruption. What does corruption mean? Corruption means rejection from the kingdom of God. They may look like they're in the kingdom of God participating in the church, but in the final day of judgment, they will be expelled from the kingdom of God. For example, in Galatians 5, the chapter before, verse 21, we see these people who are sowing in the flesh as those who will not inherit the kingdom of God. So that is a weighty thing, again, to be able to soberly assess the fruit that we are sowing by, to make sure we're sowing by the Spirit. But the good news is that, on the other hand, those who sow by the Spirit will reap eternal life. They will reap. As we support the gospel ministry of churches like Lakes Free and others, Let's remember the broader principle that Paul brings into sowing and reaping in 2 Corinthians 9. In verses 6 to 8 there, he says, The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you. So that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So you can give with that glorious promise. We can give to the ministry of the word, knowing that he will make all grace abound to us as we do it. For those who sow in the spirit, they'll never have a lack of what they need on this earth. Let's turn now to the fifth mark. The fifth mark of true spirituality is about perseverance. It's that we persevere in good works. You know, it's like Jesus' parable of the, of the sower. The seed of the gospel is sown on different soils. And uh, three of them die out. They look like there's spiritual fruit, but then they die out. But of course, the last soil, the good soil, it bears fruit 30, 50, 100 fold. Paul is saying that the mark of true spirituality is seen in the one who perseveres in good works to the end. Doing good, it's something that we should never tire of. But I think you could, would agree with me that it can be quite easy to do. I mean, when we look around at the amount of work that needs to be done, I mean, look at the mission field as, as one going to Europe, which is so hard and has been so overlooked for so long in the world of missions. It, it, it can be overwhelming and discouraging and, and feel like, why are we even trying I'm sure you felt that way, whether you look at, at things in your family or, or in the church or in your workplace. It can just be easy to give up. And I think two promises of Scripture are vital for persevering in good works. And these, there are two verses. The first is Philippians 
that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. God's, if God's at work in you, he will be faithful to complete that good work, even when the day looks bleak. And the second is 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight, where Paul says there, remain steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. You may see little fruit from your labors, but you can bank on God's good word that those labors will not be in vain. So don't set your barometer or your temperature by your eyes, by what you can see or perceive. Bank it on the promises of God. Labor on as a faithful farmer, sowing the seed, trusting that fruit will be born in God's sight. Even if all the fruit is you simply laboring on when nothing happens, that is good enough for God, and if that's his will. That's the fifth mark. Let's go to the sixth. The sixth mark of true spirituality shows who the beneficiaries of these good works should be. And that is everyone. Nobody. This is great. Nobody is off the table when it comes to being an object of receiving the good works of other people. I should get an amen. There should be some Baptists in here that can give me an amen. Come on. Nobody. Isn't that great? But we also see that the special focus of our works should be the church, the family or household of God, as Paul puts it here. This Jew-Gentile group that is justified in Christ has now become together the household of God. So notice the difference between true spirituality and man-made spirituality. Once you get kind of develop a nose for this, it's actually quite easy to detect true and false spirituality. Man-made spirituality is all about me. And false teachers will prey on you all day long because they'll whisper sweet words of things that your flesh wants to hear. They will make it all about you, which is kind of ironic. They'll, they'll make you think, oh, they, they keep you looking at yourself, my deeds, my spiritual disciplines, my self-improvement, my display of holiness. It's like a McDonald's faith. It's a have-it-your-way kind of faith. But that's not true spirituality. The eyes of those who are truly spiritual are not on themselves. They're looking out. They're looking out. C.S. Lewis once commented on the guy who's truly humble. And he said the guy, is not, the, the guy who's truly humble is not the person that kind of walks around saying, I am humble. It's the person you had the conversation with on the train who just seemed to be a generally nice guy who was genuinely interested in what you had to say. That's true spirituality. Looking out for other people. That's what Paul exemplifies in all of his ministry. The primary care of a true believer is outside of ourselves and toward others. And now, yes, don't hear me wrong, we should examine ourselves. We're called to do that in Scripture. We should care for our own souls. Uh, And we do need seasons. Uh, And for introverts like me, daily seasons of personal and spiritual nourishment and recharging. But our default move should be to look outwards. To look outwards. We do that in two directions. We look outward. We gaze upon the glory of God as we see it in his word, in his external revelation. But then we turn then and gaze outward in the care of our brothers and sisters around us. So I want you to look around again. The lion's share of your ministry is caring for these people sitting next to you. Yes, we go out, we do evangelism, we do mission. But the primary role for so many is caring for the body of Christ. So we can't come to church to get a spiritual fill-up, 
to kind of do a, a spiritual transaction. Darken the room, put the fog machines on, get entertained, get your spiritual fill up. That's why we have lights on so we can see each other because God's called us here to not just hear from his word individually, but to receive it that we might bless those around us. That's true spirituality. As Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, than he that lays his life down for his friends. I challenge you to think about how you can grow in laying your life down for those around you. Now the final mark of true spirituality. The seventh mark is the willing embrace of persecution for the gospel. You know, another, it's not just the hallmark of false teaching that when it just becomes all about you. The other hallmark of false teaching is persecution avoidance, right? We see this so clearly, for example, in the prosperity gospel. It's all about avoiding pain, and they'll say things like, God doesn't will for you to have pain in this life, right? They'll again, they'll appeal to your flesh. They never, I would imagine, preach out of 1 Peter, which is all about suffering according to the will of God. False teachers in general, not just prosperity teachers, but false preachers in general, soften the message to maintain things like academic respectability. That's why theological institutions go liberal. They end up siding with academic respectability as opposed to faithfulness to the word of God. They warp the gospel to suit modern sensibilities of religion, virtue, and morality. That's why they can grow such big churches. They're simply saying what everybody wants to hear. And they do it to avoid the world's ridicule and wrath. In verse 12, we see that Paul's opponents are forcing Gentiles, Gentile Christians, to be circumcised in order to avoid being persecuted for the cross. But we must emphatically say that the gospel is offensive. Now, we as Christians can do really stupid offensive things that unnecessarily offend the world. But faithfulness to preaching the gospel is going to bring the world's ridicule and wrath. It is offensive because it says there's no good thing in our flesh. And if you're not a Christian, that's all you've got. But there's no good thing there. In chapter 5, Paul calls the message of the gospel the offense of the cross. Paul bore all things for the sake of the cross. He bore lashes and stoning, shipwrecks, imprisonments, and even martyrdom. He bore the physical marks of true spirituality, of true discipleship. If you want to see a truly spiritual person, it's someone who endures pain and suffers the loss of all things for the sake of the gospel, regardless of job, regardless of public opinion, regardless of their life. They are willing to set it all aside for the sake of Christ. They embrace the offense of the cross. And it's against this reality that Paul lays out for true spirituality that makes the folly of his opponents become so clear Look at what he says in verse 17, in almost a note of, like, obvious exasperation. He says, From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Get off my back. You know, it's like, as a kid, you want to show your scars. You know, have you ever done that? Maybe it's just thing boys do, but you show, like, hey, check out this scar, check out this scar. Paul's saying, get off my back. You want to see scars? You want to see the marks of Christ? You want to see what holiness looks like? It's giving up all things for the sake of the cross and boasting in Christ that he could be counted worthy of it. Let's leave the, the cowardliness. Let's leave the worldliness, the fleshliness of trying to soften our witness in the world. But I'm not saying don't do it winsomely and wisely. But compromising on the gospel, will that's reaping, that's sowing in the flesh, brothers and sisters. If we do it, we will not stand in the day of judgment. Sow by the Spirit, 
follow Christ's example and follow Paul's example. Again, I want to be clear. All of these marks of true spirituality, these do not save us. These do not get us higher up on the notch in the eyes of God. As we already talked about boasting that from faith to good works, it's all from God. But these are the evidences of what it means to live by the Spirit. It's what it looks like when you put hands and feet on the fruit of the Spirit. A person that really helped put hands and feet on what it means to endure all things for the sake of Christ is William Tyndale. He's one of the heroes of the faith for me. I actually keep a picture of him in my Bible that I occasionally look at to remind me of what uh, enduring all things for the sake of the cross looks like. You may or may not know much about William Tyndale, but he is responsible for translating the Bible into English from the original languages for the first time. So the first time the Bible was ever translated from the original Greek and Hebrew was when Tyndale did it. John Wycliffe, who you may have heard of, preceded him, but Wycliffe translated the English Bible from the Latin Vulgate. The problem with the Latin Vulgate is that it was, it's filled with many errors. Uh, many of those errors were fueling Roman Catholic false doctrine, like the doctrine of penance. For example, that word metanoia uh, was translated as do penance as opposed to repent. So Tyndale, for the first time, got us to the original languages in this translation. Now, translating an unauthorized version was uh, risky business, to say the least. Point in fact, teaching the Bible at all in the common understood language was enough to get you burned at the stake. In fact, in France, there were parents being burned at the stake by the Roman Catholic Church for teaching their children the Lord's Prayer in French. So this was risky business for Tyndale as it was in all the lands, not just England, but all the lands under Roman Catholic jurisdiction. And Henry VIII was out for his life. And so he fled to the European continent. To add to that, the, uh, Roman, the Renaissance humanist and Roman Catholic theologian Thomas More wrote three quarters of a million words slandering his name and his work. Could you imagine somebody writing three quarters of a million words against you? You know, you think a a cutting Facebook comment is worse enough. But someone writing three quarters of a million words against you in a day where Moore couldn't even really, or Tyndale couldn't really stand up easily to uh, defend himself, though he did do that in writing. But Tyndale pressed on despite the fact that both his life and his reputation were being drugged through the mud and... uh, and worse than that. The result, though, was a translation so powerful that it transformed the English language and fueled the English Reformation and beyond. But it came at a cost. It came at the cost of his homeland and his life. He longed to return to England, but it was never to be. Betrayed by a man who gained his trust, Tyndale was abducted in Antwerp, and burned at the stake far away from home. But oh, does he live on. Did you know that two-thirds of our modern Bible translations are Tyndale? When you read phrases like, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, that's Tyndale. There are so many ways we could have translated Hebrews 1, or excuse me, Genesis 1 in the Hebrew. Um, phrases like, let there be light. Or he wept bitterly. Those are Tyndale. When we read our Bibles, it's the fruit of a man who gave his life for it. You know, we are saved. We come to faith by reading his word in Eng- for most of us in English. And Tyndale gave that to us by sacrificing his land and his life. Underneath, uh, I think we'll put the picture, it should be up on the screen here in a moment, but underneath this 
This picture of William Tyndale is an inscription in Latin. And in English it reads, To scatter Roman darkness by this light. He's pouring at the Bible, his life's work. To scatter Roman darkness by this light, the loss of land and life, I'll reckon slight. Are you willing to suffer the loss of land and life for the sake of the gospel? Could that title be on your tombstone one day? Now, forsaking that, giving up all those things for the loss of land and life might mean your job. It might mean your reputation as a teacher or a scholar. It might mean your reputation as a politician in the public sphere or with your family. But are you willing to suffer it for the sake of the gospel, no matter what the cost? Can you say with Paul, as he says at the end of our passage today, in verse 14, But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. Will you live the crucified life where the world is crucified to you, and you to the world? Well, in conclusion, Paul writes Galatians so that the church would not be enslaved by false spirituality, man-made spirituality. He's guarding our freedom, and I preach to you today that you would guard the freedom that you have in Christ, and you would not let yourself be enslaved. And if you see that you are, that you would come out from underneath it with God's help. Press on in the good works that he's called you to do and these marks of true spirituality. Sow these marks in the spirit that on the day of judgment you will reap eternal life if you, as Paul says, do not give up. Isn't it marvelous all that God gives us through faith in Jesus? He gives us new life and he gives us the spirit by which we do this wonderful and remarkable, other-centered, God-glorifying work. Would you give yourself to those things? And for those of you that do, I just want to say with Paul, grace to you and peace as you seek to live by the Spirit and lives of holiness all made possible by the justifying grace of the gospel that comes through the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ and is received by faith alone. Amen. Well, please stand for the benediction. And the great thing about giving a benediction when you preach the last chapter of a book is the benediction's right there for you. So I'm simply going to give it to you from the end of our passage this morning. But far be it for me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, and I pray that that is you, and as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen.